Amen. You can have a seat. Kids, you are dismissed to Cedar Mill Kids. Pastor Jeremiah, have a great time. We will miss you. We will see you soon. I'll try to go long on my sermon today so you guys get extra time in kids' ministry. That's really nice of you. That was super. That was like a courtesy clap. I felt it. Um, Good morning, friends. My name is Dave. I'm one of the pastors here that serves this church family, Cedar Mill Bible Church, and it's great to be with you. Today we are in week six of a seven-week series in the book of Revelation. Um, Just as I'm starting to enjoy this series, it's almost over. Like, you guys have been enjoying it from the beginning. I've been wrestling, but now this week was the week it kind of broke through for me where I was like, I love Revelation. And then it's like, well, it's almost done now. Okay, moving on so you can be uncomfortable again, Pastor Dave. That's what God likes to do. He keeps me uncomfortable you know how sometimes you just, you know, anyway, you guys, I don't understand what you're saying. That's another message. Um, in this series, what we're doing is we're walking through seven letters to seven churches in Asia Minor near the end of the first century. The Apostle John, who is imprisoned on the island of Patmos, has this revelation. And so he writes it down, and then it's passed to the gathered believers in each of these cities. You can kind of see the progression here on the map as, as this, this letter, this book of Revelation, gets passed from, from city to city and church to church. And one of the questions we have to ask, we have to kind of step back and ask, is why? Why does God write these letters to these churches at this time? Well, you know, the book of Revelation was written just before, right at the very beginning of major persecution breaking out across the Greco-Roman Empire. Most scholars believe that Revelation was written at about 96 AD, and from history we know that by the time of the Emperor Trajan, who was emperor from 98 AD to 117, it had become illegal to be a Christian in the Roman Empire. In fact, if anyone was accused of being a Christian, they were brought before the proconsul or the government officials and they were asked directly, are you a Christian? And if they said they were, they were told to curse Christ, curse Christ and worship the gods or the emperor. And if they refused, they were tortured and sometimes executed. Friends, when John writes Revelation, This is what's coming. This is what's just ahead, just around the corner for the church in Asia Minor. And so this book and these letters are written to prepare Jesus' followers for the suffering that lies ahead. Revelation is written to encourage and bolster and strengthen believers for extremely tough times that are right around the corner. And here's the thing. History tells us it worked. It worked. The goal of John's writing, of him sending this letter around, worked. Christians were strengthened. They were emboldened to stand strong. I've already told you the story of Polycarp back in week two of this series. If you missed that message, go back and grab it. But we have other accounts. Here's one. An account of six Christians from the city of Carthage who were accused of being Jesus' followers. They were drugged before the city's proconsul, whose name was Saturinus, and he says to them, 
Swear now by the Lord our emperor. And the Christians responded. We, this is, we have this in history. We have committed no wrong. We have committed no theft. When we buy something, we pay the tax on it. We do all this because we know our Lord, who no one sees with these eyes, who is the king of kings and the emperor of all nations. Saturinus says, have a delay of 30 days and rethink this. The Christians say, no, we are Christians. Saturinus says, since you have obstinately persisted, it is determined that you will be put to the sword. They answered in unison, thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. Now here's what's interesting. In the middle of that exchange, these Christians are quoting language and using imagery that comes straight out of the book of Revelation. In other words, friends, the, the challenge and encouragements and truths of this book that we're studying in this series gave Jesus' followers in the first century boldness and courage and endurance to face some of the most gnarly struggles Christ's followers on this planet have ever faced. And it wants to do the same for you and me today. In the, in the middle of the letter we're going to read this morning, you will find the word hupomone. Hupomone. It's a compound word in Greek. Mone means to stay or to stand. And when you add the, the prefix hupo in front of any Greek word, it accentuates it. It like builds it up. And so hupomone means to like hyperstay. It means to really stand your ground. It means to strongly and persistently persevere and endure through what you're facing. Our letter today, friends, is about perseverance and endurance. Our letter today is about standing strong in the face of adversity. It's about moving forward, even when how you feel and what you face seems to be saying, stop, quit, surrender, give in, turn around. Real quick, does anyone know who this is? few of you know? Eliud Kipchoge. This is Eliud Kipchoge. Eliud is the fastest marathon runner in history. Recently, he ran, and you marathon runners will understand the significance of this. Recently, he ran a marathon in under two hours, which is the first time anyone has ever done this in the history of the world. And as you can see on the screen here, he ran a four-minute and 34-second mile for 26 miles. Now, humble brag moment here real quick. My fastest mile time is 5.03. I told you it was a little bit of a humble brag. I really wanted to break five minutes. I like, with everything in me, like I was like, I'm gonna get five minutes or under. Wouldn't it have been so cool to be like, I ran the mile once in 4.59. I would just, I mean, it wouldn't be a humble brag, it'd just be full arrogance at that point, right? I'd just be like, I'm pretty cool, you know? And, and this is my senior year in college, I was in the best shape of my life, and I gave it everything I had, and I could only get 5.03. For one mile, <laughs> one time. Not one mile, 26 times in a row. Do you understand? 
Four minutes and 34 seconds. And if you watch the video, this is the, actually, this is just a screenshot of a video. If you watch the video, he's not even tired. I think he could have got like 420. He runs across the finish line. Well, I, you'd expect him just to like fall down or something. No, he runs over, hugs his wife, grabs a flag, keeps running around. I'm thinking, what is happening, dude? This guy is crazy, 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 amazing. Friends, our letter today is how to have this kind of endurance in our lives of faith. How to have this kind of endurance in our lives of faith, even in the midst of suffering and struggles. So let's read together the letter to the church at Philadelphia. You can see it there on the map. And again, just in case there's confusion, some of you are like, Philadelphia, really? Wow, the Bible came to America? Nope, nope, that's a whole another religion. This... This is Philadelphia, a city in Asia Minor in the first century. Okay, here we go. Revelation chapter 3, verses 7 through 13. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. What he opens, no one can shut, and what he shuts, no one can open. I know your deeds. See, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. I know that you have little strength, yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not, but are liars. I will make them come and fall down at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Since you have kept my command to endure patiently, I will also keep you from the hour of trial that is going to come on the whole world to test the inhabitants of the earth. I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name, Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Today, friends, this letter is going to offer us three things, three things we need to believe in order to endure patiently. Three things that if we learn and believe and hold tight, to the fact that they are true, will empower us as followers of Jesus in this broken world to stand strong and hold on even when times get tough. Three things. Here we go. Here's the first one. We must believe. And by the way, when I say the word believe, I don't just mean like, I kind of agree. Like, believe it in your heart and mind. We must believe God is in control in our suffering. We must believe that God is in control in our suffering. In all seven of these letters, Jesus introduces himself in a different way, in in a way that connects to what he wants to say specifically to that church in that letter. And this week is no different. This week, Jesus says, these are the words of him. He's talking about himself. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Holy and true are words that describe Yahweh in the Old Testament. Jesus is saying, I'm him. I'm him. 
I'm God. I am the one who created all things, the heavens and the earth. These are the words of him who is holy and true, who holds the key of David. Now, keys in the ancient world were not a whole lot different than they are today, um, but they were about authority. If you had a key, you had authority. If you were an estate owner or, or a landowner and you wanted someone to oversee your property, if you wanted someone to manage it or have authority over it, you would give them the keys. And here we read that Jesus has the key of David. Who was David? He was the king of Israel. God had given David the key to have authority over that nation. But in the Old Testament, what we read is that someday another would come in the line of David, in the name of David, and he would rule and he would have authority and he would have the key, not just of, of Israel, but of the entire world. It says, what he, what Jesus opens, no one can shut. And what he shuts, no one can open. Jesus is reminding the church in Philadelphia here, I am in complete control of everything. I have complete authority over everything that happens on this entire planet. He says to them, this world that you are living in, may feel out of control, and it will get a lot worse, but never forget this. I've got it. I'm in control. I can handle it. And I have got you. Friends, maybe, maybe some of you need to hear that today. Maybe just that one simple truth is all you needed this morning. He has got you. In the middle of whatever you're facing, in the middle of whatever problem or struggle is making you feel fearful or unsafe or unsettled or unraveled or unnerved, remember this truth. Jesus is in control and he has got you. You ever been on a plane, a plane with really bad turbulence? You ever been on a plane in the middle of a storm? If you've experienced this, you know that in that moment you realize very clearly I don't have control. I am not in control. I feel out of control. And there are two things you want to be true of the pilot who has control. One, you want that pilot to be a person of good intention, someone who wants what's best for you and the other passengers. You don't want a pilot that's like, I think I'm going to test the limits of this 747. Like, you know, I think I'm going to work on my, my stunts right now. No, you don't want that pilot. You want a pilot who's thinking, what's best for the passengers? Two... You want a pilot that's skilled. You want a pilot that has gone through some good, good training. You want a pilot who knows what she is doing. Now back to those two words. These are the words of him who is holy and true. Holy means set apart from sin. This is, this is not a Jesus who is mean or angry or selfish or vindictive. This is a God who is holy, who is kind and loving and trustworthy. And then there's that word true. This is, the, this is cool. Listen to this. The actual Greek word true means opposite to what is imperfect, frail, and uncertain. You don't want a pilot who's frail, uncertain, or imperfect, do you? Opposite, it also means this, opposite to what is fictitious, counterfeit, imaginary, or pretend. 
Do you want an imposter pilot flying your plane in the middle of turbulence? No, you don't. Friends, we are being told here that Jesus is the real deal. In other words, if you've got some turbulence going through your life right now, if you find yourself in these days flying through a storm, Jesus is the best pilot that you could ever hope for. Sit back, put your trade tables up, Take a deep breath and relax because he has got you. We must believe God is in control even in our suffering. And maybe you're thinking right now, well, that sounds great, but that just makes me not like God because if he's in control, he could certainly end it. Like if he's, if he's in control, then let's, let's stop the turbulence. Let's fly to a different altitude. Let's get out of here, right? This leads to our second point. In order to stand firm and endure patiently through the struggles of life, we must believe God will use our suffering. He's in control of our suffering, but he'll also use our suffering for our good. See, in our letter today, we learn that this church, this church in Philadelphia in the first century, is being persecuted. They're being persecuted by a local synagogue, by some people who are in name Jewish, but are in heart hateful. So these Jesus followers in Philadelphia are facing resistance and adversity and persecution. And then in verse 8 it says, see, this is Jesus, to this church, I have placed before you an open door that no one can shut. What is an open door? In the Bible, an open door stands for an opportunity for the gospel to spread. In the scriptures, an open door is often referring to a place where the kingdom of God has the chance to break through. It's the chance for God's will to be done on earth as it is in heaven. And based on this letter, it sounds like God is using, listen to this, listen, the suffering of this church to do something amazing in the lives of the very people that are causing their suffering. I know, he says, he says, I know that you have little strength. You ever feel that way in the middle of suffering? You ever feel, you ever have that sense in the middle of a trial or a struggle or an adversity? Like, I don't have what it takes to do this. I don't got it. I can't make it. God says, I know. I know that you have little strength. Yet you have kept my word and have not denied my name. I will make those who are of the synagogue of Satan, who claim to be Jews, though they are not but are liars, listen, I will make them come down and fall at your feet and acknowledge that I have loved you. Do you you see the change of posture here? Do you see the change of a heart here? Do you see the, the change of position? Jesus is saying, through your weakness, through your struggle, through your enduring, I will cause these evil people to have a change of a heart. Jesus says, I'm going to use your struggle to do something remarkable. Here's the point, friends. Don't miss the point. If you want to have endurance through suffering, you must believe that you believe that you believe that God will use your suffering. That it's not just wasted, that it's not just pointless, that it's not just a mistake. And here's a few ways. Here's just a few ways that God does this. Here's a few ways that God uses suffering in our lives for our good. A, God uses suffering to break down 
our illusions of control. And I'll kind of live with this illusion of control. And God says, we can fix that. Listen to this quote from Tim Keller. You did not choose your gender. You did not choose your chromosomes. You did not choose your level of intelligence. You did not choose your racial background. You did not choose the year you were going to graduate from college. You did not choose the economic climate you came into. You did not choose your family life. You did not choose your talents. Some people argue, are your talents and abilities really the product of nurture or nature? It doesn't matter. In either case, they came to you. Do you realize how little you are in charge of things? Don't you see that if you're a success today, thousands of things could have gone wrong that didn't? Not only in the Bible, but social science research research indicates, listen to this, we have an infinite capacity for taking credit for everything good that happens in our lives and blaming the world and everyone else for everything bad that happens to us. We have an infinite capacity. That means just a lot of capacity. What he's saying here, friends, is that when things in our lives are good, we tend to have an uncanny propensity to think that we're doing well because of our decisions, because we are in control. I have led my life into this wonderful place. Didn't I do a good job, right? But then when suffering comes, when life gets hard and we are no longer in control, we can't control it, we can't stop it, that's when we have the chance to learn that we are not in control, not as much as we think, but are dependent on the one who is. God uses suffering to break down our illusions of control. B, God uses suffering to break down our illusions of safety and security. You see, uh, you and I often feel safe in life. We often feel secure in this world where we live because we're experiencing safe and secure circumstances. I feel safe and secure because my circumstances are safe and secure. I feel safe in my life because I'm in great health. And then comes the struggle of old age. And then comes the suffering of those lab results. I feel secure in my life because I have some decent savings and a well-paying job. And then comes layoffs. And then comes economic downturn. I feel stable because of certain achievements or status or relationships in my life. And then comes failure or defeat or slander or betrayal. And now, and now, because of these struggles, I realize I am not in control. And my safety and security can ultimately only be found in him. God is saying, the places you're finding safety and security are not safe and secure at all. They're quite precarious. You see, here's the thing about suffering. It will either rob you of your safety and security, we've all seen this happen in people's lives, or it will redirect your security to rely on the one who is truly safe. Here's another thing. God uses suffering to help us see who we really are. This one's real fun. See, we all have this propensity to believe things about ourselves that may or may not be true until those things are tested. Until those things we believe about ourselves face some resistance. Until that happens, we really don't know. Lots of things in life work this way. Delightful people don't help us figure out if we're patient. Annoying people do. 
The resistance and struggle of their annoyance reveals our true level of patience. Thank you, annoying people. We appreciate you. You don't know who you are. That was kind of mean. That was kind of mean. Okay, sorry. All of us are that person sometimes. A stroll around the block doesn't tell you if you're in shape. It's that five-mile race that does, right? It's easy to think you're smart or to think you're not smart. This cuts both ways until you're tested. But the test, the struggle, the adversity reveals your true level of intelligence. You see, through struggle and adversity and suffering, we discover who am I really? I I remember um, in college basketball, this is my second college basketball story today, I know, sorry. But uh, at the very beginning of the season, every year in October, right when practice would start, sometime that first week of practice, we would be tested. You see, we used to run these things called 10 and 60s. And ultimately, the coach would just put us on the baseline of the basketball court, and you have to run 10 lengths in 60 seconds. It's like 10 and 60, go. You'd boom, 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 right? 10, over. But at the beginning of the year, the coach would say, put 20 minutes on the clock. We're running 20 10 and 60s in a row. You finish in 40 seconds, you have 20 seconds to rest before the next one. You finish in 50 seconds, you have 10 seconds to rest. You finish in 59 seconds, you get one second to rest. But you have to finish in 60 seconds, and then the next one starts. And in that moment, you would discover, you would find out really who was in shape. You'd find out really who slacked off over the summer and who worked out. You see, it was the adversity that revealed who we really were as a team. Friends, this is how God uses suffering in our lives to show us, to reveal things to us that we might miss when times are easy. Are you a loving person? You'll find out when, you, when your hard-to-love in-laws come to town this week for Thanksgiving. <laughs> are you full of God's joy? You'll find out when that person or pleasure or position is taken away from you Are you a person of peace? Maybe the pressure of a pandemic revealed some things about this in your life. Are you kind? Are you faithful? Are you gentle? Are you self-controlled? You'll find out when those things are challenged, when they face adversity. God uses suffering to help us see who we really are. Last one. God uses suffering to help us become like Jesus, specifically in the area of compassion. One of the most often used descriptors of Jesus is that he was compassionate. He would see people struggling, hurting, suffering, and he cared for them deeply. He empathized with their struggle. He wanted to help. God can use suffering to make us like Jesus in this way. When Amy and I first got married, I was not a dog person. I never, we didn't have dogs growing up. I never had a dog ever in my childhood. It's one of those things that, you know, It's like, you know, I should probably talk to my parents about this in a deeper way. Um, I was neglected on that. Um, But uh, so we got married and we were living in an apartment, so we couldn't get a dog. But the day we moved into our first house, and I mean the day, like the actual day, we got the keys, we got the puppy. It happened on the day. That's how much my wife loves dogs. And I was sort of like, I became sort of a dog tolerator. I was like tolerating this dog, although he was pretty cute. He's a puppy. And then we had to get a friend for our dog. And sometimes, yeah, it's a, it's a whole thing. But at some point in there, our second dog died. It's kind of a tragic thing. Don't ask us about it. We don't want to relive it. But 
But it was tough. And I cried. And I don't mean like little cry. I mean like one of those ugly cries where like the, you know, the snot is like, it was rough. I don't know if I've cried that hard. To that point in my life, I mean, that was one of the hardest times I'd ever cried. And before that moment, I used to think people were a little crazy about their dogs. And people would talk about like their dog dying and I'd be like, it's a dog, whatever. Like, you know. But then after that moment, after that suffering, all of a sudden there was this new level of understanding and empathy and compassion for people and how they cared about their pets. See, God used that moment to help me be more like Jesus, to help me be more compassionate. Friends, we must believe God controls our suffering. We must believe God will use our suffering. And finally, here's our last point today. We must believe this is what helps us get through it. This is what gives us endurance and, and stand firmness in the face of struggle. We must believe God gives us hope beyond our suffering. He says, I am coming soon. Hold on to what you have so that no one will take your crown. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. Never again will they leave it. I will write on them the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which is coming down out of heaven from my God. And I will also write on them my new name. That's what he says. I want to focus in these final verses on that pillar, though. The one who is victorious, I will make a pillar in the temple of my God. This is cool. In, in, in Greek temples, pillars were often dedicated to individual people. What they would do, this is in the Greco-Roman world, is they would engrave these marble pillars with the names of people who had supposedly been healed by that God, by that particular God. And so John here, he's using very familiar imagery that would have been understandable to his readers in the first century. And here's what he's saying. He's saying, Christ followers, church, Christians, if you hold on, I know it's hard. I know there's struggle. I know there's brokenness. I know there's going to be intense suffering in your lives. But if you hold on, if you hold on to Jesus, and if you keep your faith through these struggles, your names will be engraved not by some fictitious imposter God on an earthly temple, but by the one true God on an eternal temple. In other words, the God of heaven and earth will heal you. Not just for a little bit, not just for a moment here on this planet, but for eternity and for all time. He's saying your suffering someday will be no more. Near the end of Revelation, friends, Jesus says this to his people. This is Revelation chapter 21. These are the words of Jesus. I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. See, friends, this is the message of Revelation. This is the message that ultimately got those first century believers through the suffering they would endure under the emperors of Rome. This is for you and me, friends. This is the message. Hold on through the suffering. Stand strong through the trial. Persevere through the trial.
perseverance because there is a hope on the other side worth fighting for. There's a hope on the other side of this thing worth fighting for, friends. And that is why when we gather together, we share this meal. It's what this whole meal is about. We come together and then we are going to conclude our service today with this meal, this celebration. It's a meal about remembering that our God loves us so much that he came to earth and gave his life and defeated death so that the suffering, pain, and brokenness we experience here would not have the last word in our lives. So whatever you're facing today, whatever you're dealing with in life, whatever struggle or obstacle is before you or is coming down the road, bring it to the table this morning. Friends, be encouraged, be strengthened today. Let this meal remind you that nothing in this world, not even the most intense suffering you will ever face, is as powerful as the God we serve. Because not even the grave could hold him. Not even the grave could hold him down. Not even death could defeat him. The suffering you face, he can take it down like that, and someday he will. That's the promise we hold on to, and that's what we remember in this meal we'll share together. So take a minute. Think about what you're facing these days. Think about what you've gone through or what you're going through right now that might overwhelm you or wear you down or tire you out or create fear in you or insecurity in you. And bring that to the table. Bring it to the cross of Jesus and remember how loving and good and strong our God is. Come get your elements. Bring them back to your seat. Spend some time with the Lord. And then we're going to take them together in just a minute. Take your time, but the tables are open when you're ready.